You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is the I Love You Keep Going. Uh, we're now going to be calling it, instead of meditation and attachment, deepening your practice, we're going to be calling it I Love You Keep Going. And it is February 10th, 2022. It's 7.35 p.m. on Pacific Standard Time. And we've been talking about the uh, progress of insight in the last few weeks. And um, tonight, actually, when is the, the night that we would talk about the fourth of these stages. <clears throat> um, let me see here. I always like to use the actual name of things. Um, knowledge of arising and passing away is the name of this. Uh, we talked uh, last week about um, impermanence, which is slightly different than the knowledge of arising and passing away. Uh, impermanence has this sort of wide sense of it that everything is impermanent, all large and small. And here, really, what we're trying to do in exploring arising and passing is noticing that each sensing experience arises and passes basically that everything is happening in this constant wave of arising and passing uh, so we with the sensing experience in all of the different sense gates we focus on um, the arising and passing one of the things that becomes apparent uh, if you don't have a sort of you don't have a sense of the vibratory nature of everything and the unfixated nature of everything is this habit energy of fixating things into solid uh, conceptual reality and not really having much awareness of the vibratory ultimate reality experience so part of this is tuning into that quality of uh, everything is coming in uh, as a sensing experience through the sense gates that you have and it's picked up as uh, undifferentiated unfixated energy uh, and actually if you talk about it uh, in terms of that ultimate reality versus conceptual reality everything is known through this vast uh, expanse of awareness uh, which is open and capable of creating anything out of what is experienced there. I think um, the untrained uh, mind really thinks that we're creating a, uh, a facsimile of what it is that's out there that we're experiencing. And, uh, and uh, if we touch into the understanding that it's just this wide open uh, capacity to make anything out of the sensing experience, uh, we move out of uh, any kind of reliance on what we create as an absolute representation into uh, the perception that we we create in each moment, the experiences that we have, um, the conceptual experience of what we have um, based on both our conditioning and also on our capacity to imagine things. And so there's an interesting piece to explore about the, 
the database uh, of uh, perce the perceptual database, which is the record of not what's happened to you, but what it's meant to you, what's happened has meant to you. It also includes a hierarchy of preferences for things so that when you really begin to pull this apart and see it clearly, what you'll notice is that the mind directs uh, your attention to things that have high value to you and grabs these little pieces, these snapshots of that. And then they're, they're strung together and uh, conceptual reality is created out of that series of mind moments that you pick up. And depending on what your preferences are, you take a sampling in the environment that you're in of those preferences and that's uh, how you form uh, the experience of conceptual reality. And because it is so particular to your condition and so particular to the things that you've uh, selected to make into conceptual reality, we really have to come from this place of understanding that our uh, conceptual version of what's happening is not what's happening. And also really understand that awareness and this thing that connects us all uh, is uh, capable of producing anything out of uh, what it is that you gather uh, together. Uh, so the question is always, have you ever been wildly wrong in the way that you interpreted what was happening? It's a question. So um, we have the capacity to sense the object that can be sensed when they meet a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. And that consciousness of sensing is then evaluated for processing speed. Vedna is the Pali word for that. Uh, I like to say processing speed. It, if it needs urgent attention, if it doesn't really matter whether you get to it, if it's pleasant uh, and there's time uh, to process it, you can look at that. Then it's compared to the, the database. And if there's a close enough uh, entry in the database to what that selection of mind moments is that's coming up, then the, the meanings uh, associated with that uh, attach to that, and then it's projected outward in the in the form of uh, conceptual reality. And uh, each of the, that solid perception of conceptual reality is made of these tiny waves of arising and passing, sensing experience from all of the different sense gates. And so what tends to happen in people that haven't uh, trained themselves to look at this is that we jump from arising to arising to arising, and we don't notice the passing away or the dropping off. And so when we really want to push into the uh, experience of arising and passing, the, the emphasis is not on watching the arisings, which mostly we're good at doing, but focusing on the passing away experience. So riding each discrete wave uh, as it arises and passes and following the passing away to the, the point that it ends or vanishes. Is that making sense? So you're aware that each thing ends. Um, we don't have to have a complete uh, experience of everything in the field where this is happening because we can infer from a complete experience of a single uh, event of arising and passing that all events that are similar to that will arise and pass in the same way. 
And so that's one of the things that we we pull up from the earlier insights that along this progression. And then in meditation, we sit and we watch this uh, experience of arising and passing. The technique that I usually recommend for this is the just note gone technique of shins and yangs, where the focus is really the passing away. So you're watching all of the sense gates at the same time, or wherever your attention is being drawn. And uh, the object of meditation becomes the the, um, substantial dropping away or ending of any particular sense experience. Then you can begin to explore it in each of the sense gates separately and then open up into the experience of the whole range of sensing experience uh, arising and passing. Most of the time, it's a very sort of slow, um, matter-of-fact kind of uh, experience. Uh, If you're not sure of the arising and passing, one of the objects that's easiest to use is the breath. You uh, bring your attention to the breath, notice that it arises, passes, arises, and passes. So uh, the outbreath ends. There may or may not be a gap between the end of the outbreath and the beginning of the inbreath. Usually, the diaphragm contracting to create the inbreath is pretty substantial, so it's easy to track. Then you follow that uh, dissipation of the vacuum energy that the uh, expanding breath has as part of it. Uh, the the lungs expand until they reach a capacity, and then. The in-breath ends, and then it reverses, the diaphragm relaxes, the, the chest, the weight of the chest and the, the uh, intercostal muscles contracting, push the air out, you can feel that pressure, and then as the air empties, it dissipates, and then you're again at the, the end of the uh, out-breath. So each of those, the end of the out-breath, the end of the in-breath is a gone. Um, and then begin to move into other experiences. Uh, It may be that the sensing experience, the contact with the object itself ends, and so the sensing experience ends. But it could also be a process where the attention or interest in a particular object ends, and so your, your attention moves away to a different object. And so that's also a kind of uh, gone in the experience or an, uh, an ending. Um, one of the things that we Shinzen calls flow is often called piti, and that's what it often means. Um, it's a kind of vibratory, unfixated energy that can be in the body, and you can also follow that as it moves in, in each of the sense gates, still tracking the gons, and then. Um, that energy moves, can dissolve the uh, barriers between the individual sense gates and then also dissolve the barrier between inside and out. That's the direction that the arising and passing meditation uh, tends to lead. The dissolution of the body is the fifth stage. In tracking the arising and passing, sometimes what you notice is that there's a kind of pulsating uh, uh, activity that that is in awareness, which is it's this expansive and contractive pulsing energy. If that comes up, that's something to pay attention to. Um, but what you begin to notice as the uh, as you're paying attention to these 
passings away or these uh, gones uh, is that the fluid nature of conceptual reality begins to give way and it becomes more jagged, more staccato. Some of you who are old enough and went to the movie theaters when they still showed film might remember a time when the film broke and then uh, it, that fluid motion of the, the uh, experience on the screen becomes individual frames. And then, the, of course, the whole thing ignites into white light. Um, but that, that is a kind of a metaphor for what we're talking about here, where that, that fluid nature, that experience of conceptual reality begins to give way and it gets kind of vibratory or choppy, or I like to call it staccato. Um, and uh, when that happens, you tend to get into a super high concentrated state and you can see very clearly in each of the sense gates this distinct pattern of arising and passing. And this is often called the uh, arising and passing event, where that fluid, uh, constant experience of conceptual reality begins to, to, to break apart and you can begin to see uh, directly that uh, that process of uh, creating conceptual reality is a function of the mind, body-mind, that's then projected outward and is not an actual experience of what's out there. The question then is, why would you want to do this, uh, since we all rely on that uh, uh, function of conceptual reality? And really the idea is, to begin to see clearly the nature of the human experience uh, so that we can come out of uh, an aspect of a suffering that happens when we really get in uh, uh, into this idea that uh, our version of things, the conceptual reality that we make is actually what's happening. And, uh, it's very hard to shake that idea that the way that we experience things isn't uh, what's universally experienced and that that solidness of the world that we create uh, habitually uh, isn't actually what's happening. But when you move into these uh, direct experiences where you see the world being made and coming apart and being made, uh, it, it shakes that uh, reliable belief in uh, uh, the conceptual reality that you create in a way that allows you then to open up to the experience of what's actually happening and also step back from the need to defend uh, so vigorously your experience of what you've made. Is that making sense? It, in, in that sense, it's quite freeing. But one of the things that comes up quite a bit as people get into this is that there's uh, the potential for a fearful response to the loss of that solidness. So it's often talked about in Theravada circles as the point of no return. You know, uh, I like to say little Toto runs across the, uh, the, uh, the uh, room where the terrible Oz is talking and pulls back the curtain, and then you see that it's actually a, a, a snake oil salesman 
and not the terrible wizard. <laughs> you can't unsee that. <laughs> so um, be prepared for that. Uh, if you do these practices that are organized for this, particularly the just don't go on practice, because it, it's very efficient at knocking the solidity of conceptual reality out. Uh, and then it and beginning to see these different pieces that come together. Each of the different senses contributes uh, a vibratory arising and passing thread. Um, mind uh, uh, gathers them up and then uh, it's compared to the perceptual database and conceptual reality is created. The intention for the action that we would take in response to what we've made forms, we take the action um, we track the outcome. All of that is this process of um, uh, experiencing the present moment and functioning uh, as we are. Once you uh, um, begin to see this uh, phenomenon, the, the belief in a, a solid self that's determining of all of this stuff also begins to come apart. You can see that the sense of self is made up out of the same arising and passing sensing events. Um, and that can be very difficult to see through. Uh, the belief that the conscious experience of self is actually the, the doer, the controller, the beer, the creator, the decision maker, uh, is hard to shake if you don't see uh, directly um, the experience of the the self uh, coming and going or coming apart, that actually what we're doing is this uh, largely unconscious beingness that acts uh, based on our conditioning and moves through the world like that with the consciousness of self just as the monitor, just really as the, the, the uh, uh, I think Dan would say the Danness or the, the Georgeness sitting at the, the veto button ready to veto it if it's a boneheaded idea. Uh, and if, if you're not mindful, of course, you just engage in the activity without monitoring it or without adjusting it. But it runs behind a half second behind. Uh, and so when you really begin to see everything pull apart in that arising and passing space, uh, you see that construct of self also pull apart. And then really what you're having is the experience of this doingness that you are. And then uh, hopefully what happens is there's an opening uh, to a kind of curiosity with yourself as to what you do. And you, you take an interest in it. It's really a positive interest in the experience of what you do, how you react. What is that conditioning like? so that you can begin to move uh, in a skillful way through the world. So you begin by doing this uh, just don't go on technique, uh, noting uh, each uh, um, uh, significant falling away or ending. And it's just something that you do constantly. You can do it as a walking practice. You can do it uh, as a practice in life all day long, just doing it. You can do it in a sitting practice on retreat. Um, 
I think that maybe the retreat practice isn't a half bad idea because you do need to do it intensely for a period of time to have the effect and also uh, it's in a, a safe container so that if that if uh, uh, it picks up momentum and, and you begin to have this sort of choppy experience of the present moment it, it, it's a it's a place where you can also get help with it particularly if it's the first time or two that you're doing it so that uh, it's hard to predict how you might react to it based on that is that making sense until you begin to have these kinds of experiences uh, meditation can be psychedelic or it can be sort of generating of these insights but the the world um, and the self uh, coming apart uh, into these pieces um, and falling into this super high concentrated state where every every uh, sensing experience that you turn to becomes this very clear arising and passing experience which you can track um, there's a quality to that which is quite um, almost intoxicating that that the the, the actual clarity of it uh, the vividness of it and then as you move into the fifth stage which follows pretty quickly most of the time the the sense of the in, of the the boundary between the, the intern internal and external state of the body disappears and you're just this uh, energy experience again um, in my experience of it it's quite blissful uh, and then you're just this energy. How's that sound? And then you drop out of it pretty hard. That exquisite capacity to concentrate is completely lost. Uh, the, the sense of the self trying to reconstitute uh, can be quite uh, frightening the the having seen behind the curtain the illusion of conceptual reality is also uh, compromised and uh, there may be some desire to put that back together so that you can rely on it again but again once you're there you can't really uh, depend on it in the way that you might have before you notice that and then that puts you into the knowledge of the miseries or the dark night of the soul there's a lot of conversation about that in the Theravada community, because uh, if you do these practices, um, it's an, this kind of response to them is an ordinary outcome. And so it's important that you have a, a, a teacher or facilitator that actually understands what to do if these things happen to you and is able to recognize them if they do happen to you so that uh, you have some help in integrating the experience often what i hear uh, described uh, in people who talk about the dark night uh, or the knowledge of the miseries is that uh, there's a there's not a, a path out of the the distress of the knowledge of the misery so um, the sixth stage is a uh, fearfulness that the 
the self is not solid, lasting, intrinsic, ongoing. Uh, the seventh is misery that actually everything is impermanent and, uh, uh, and you can't actually rely on anything, uh, any, anything's permanence. Um, and uh, the eighth is uh, disgust, is the English word often used for it, which is that you live in a body that's aging and isn't going to last either. Uh, have you actually spent much time contemplating that you're in a body that's going to age and at a certain point uh, die on you? <laughs> what kind of ride is that? <laughs> What do you do with that? I think for most of us, we just kick the can down the road and don't even consider it. We are always uh, able to imagine uh, another uh, compromise for how we have to get along. This is particularly true of aging. Um, I say this, uh, and uh, it, it is probably the most contentious point of all of the things that I teach, uh, which is that old age starts at 55. <laughs> we like to think 65 or 75 uh, old age starts at. But if we're talking just about the biology of the body, it's much earlier than that. Old, old age starts at 75. If you live that long, and most people don't live past their 70s, the vast majority do not. You know, you have the first uh, 30 years of life, which is when you're young, uh, childhood 10 years, let's say adolescence 10 years, youth 10 years, and then you, you go into your adult uh, period. So maybe the first 10 years of your adult period between 30 and 55 is getting yourself in a, in a position in our culture, getting yourself in position for the, the run at the gold ring or the brass ring, depending. And then you hit 40, and that's actually that sprint the, of the adult life, 40 to your early 50s when aging really kicks in. Uh, and then you come into old age. There's a significant drop of energy when you hit your early 30s. There's another one when you hit your early 50s, another one in your early 70s. This is the this is the consideration of this human condition that we're in we're born into. You may recall that one of the Buddhist practices uh, that's recommended for this is to contemplate all of the ways that you can die or to come. They have a corpse meditation where you come contemplate the 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 body you live in being a corpse and being scattered. One of the things I think that's useful about that contemplation is often that what happens in the dark night of the soul is this fork in the road where one direction leads to nihilism. Nothing, nothing lasts, nothing can be counted on, so nothing matters. It's, uh, you don't have to engage in anything, and maybe actually detaching and disengaging from the, the activity of being alive is a better solution because at least you you don't have the pain of losing everything. But you still lose everything. 
the other direction is this engagement in everything just going in full in in each moment that you can go full in knowing uh as you do that that you are going to lose it anyway so there isn't this pretense that you can somehow hold on to it or make it last longer there's this knowledge and in going into it that it's going to be lost and so you want to engage it as fully as possible and then lose it and get really good at losing things so that you don't suffer so much from that arising and passing again that arising and passing is that making sense so that's this this uh the process of the knowledge of the miseries is really coming to terms with this that the, the self is not real it isn't that there isn't a selfing activity there is and it it isn't even that it's not a good central organizing uh, information structure in, in us it is uh, but it isn't permanent and ongoing, it changes. Um, the second is, of course, everything changes, that nothing will last and that everything will be lost. And then the third, that uh, suffering aspect. Dukkha is often translated as suffering. I liked Shinzen's translation, which was unsatisfactoriness. It's unsatisfactory, a lot of the the conditions of the human existence um, and then but it still suggests in that translation that there is a satisfaction or a satisfactory way of of that uh, there is a model for satisfaction that uh, we just don't meet in the human form and then dan brown uh, translates it as reactivity which i i actually quite like it's it's neutral. We have this these capacities to sense things. If uh, our capacity to sense is contacted by an object that can be sensed, a sensing experience arises from that contact. And when the contact is uh, over, the sensing experience falls away. That natural arising and passing. So that even if we totally pure our, purify ourselves and we don't cling or uh, we don't avoid we don't space out we're fully present and we allow with perfect equanimity the arising and passing of all these sensing experiences we're still reactive to contact to our sense gates and that seems to be the best uh, mapping of that so each time your sense your capacity to sense is contacted by an object that can be sensed this activity arises and we want to be able to come and go from that that uh, process and to see it clearly the the heightened experience of arising and passing this fourth stage is quite uh, remarkable and so uh, if it happens to you you should be able to uh, detect it pretty easily because it's so different than the ordinary experience of it. Uh, it's one of the reasons that the, they call it an arising and passing event where you just see quite uh, vividly this in each of the sense gates that you turn your attention to, the arising and passing. And because you can see it so clearly, it doesn't blend together in that fluid experience that we often have of conceptual reality. 
it's just it buzz the way that uh, uh, the the softness of uh, uh, conceptual reality uh, becomes uh, when you have seen this over and over again. So even if in this initial experience of it, there's a fearfulness that arises in response, everything coming apart, it is something that as you practice and go through uh, multiple times, you become uh, accustomed to or acclimatized to. And then actually it can become quite a pleasure, pleasurable experience. And, uh, and as you cycle through the, the, this uh, Dharma map of the 16 stages, um, you can have uh, semi-complete experiences, mostly complete experiences, and you get quite used to that, the process of tracking it. So that arising and passing experience, which moves into the dissolution, the complete dissolving of inside and outside, complete dissolving of the barrier between the sense gates, that just that energy experience of uh, totally unfixated energy of, the, of your uh, activity of doing, and then being spit out and landing in this sort of dense, uh, scattered uh, experience of the knowledge of the miseries. And what comes under that is this current, uh, the desire to be delivered from suffering that you drop into, and it pulls you into the 10th stage, which is observation. Mainly what we're looking for there is this penetrating understanding of the nature of, of the three characteristics which we started with uh, on the third stage. That the, the, the self-experience arises and passes like all other experiences and, and is an ordering principle for information and, and a way of operating well in the world. Uh, everything is impermanent and, and that direction mainly I'm advocating that you engage everything as much as you can because it's going to be lost if you disengage and you don't bother with it it's still lost the main difference there is that in one you have this rich experience and in the other you don't have much of that and as you age and as uh, as the difficulty of life uh, increases as your capacity to meet it decreases uh, and in the aging process uh, that richness uh, is actually the thing that carries you forward. And so I think that it's vitally important. We might call it from the attachment side of things, exploration, the exploration, the things that create a meaningful existence for you matter in that uh, forward movement of life. Uh, whereas the detachment or the nihilism doesn't so much. then you coast out of that into kind of equanimity and that place of being that operating out of that place of equanimity is, is a, is a great uh, place. Any questions about all of that? Sarah? Um, yeah, I'm still not really clear what reobservation is. So I get that it's the end of this third part where we're in misery and then we move into equanimity 
but what are we reobserving the other parts of reobservation means that you integrate deeply the three characteristics of existence so that you you know that there is no solid experience of self and so in each present moment as it arises after that insight you don't fixate or uh, rely on the sense of self anymore so you don't have the suffering that comes from that everything is impermanent and you accept that and experience it as impermanent and you don't cling anymore to the things that you want and you don't resist anymore the things that you don't want because you know everything is in this pattern of arising and passing so the things that you want and that 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 are agreeable will pass away and the things that you don't want that you resist so that you don't have to have them will also pass away there's no need to do that almost like a bridge from the dukkha to the equanimity right i see and then the third is the dukkha or the the first level of dukkha is the the old age sickness and death aspect you don't quibble with that anymore uh that's where it really that engagement comes from you really engage everything because everything will be lost including this uh incarnation or this life this body uh the second level is where you get uh, sometimes you get what you want but then you lose it you go into trying to uh, find meaning knowing that even if you find it you'll lose it it doesn't it doesn't inhibit you from that one of the things that happens a a lot to people as they get older uh, is that the disappointment of not actually getting things or losing them begins to accumulate and it can become a, a really inhibiting force moving forward it isn't that you don't want to try again but sometimes getting the 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 actual getting of it isn't worth the risk of the disappointment if you don't get it and so you simply stop trying this is particularly true of intimate relationships you stop trying because the disappointment of another failed relationship is too great then um sometimes you don't get what you want and that also can be a source of not trying anymore because of the disappointment of that and then sometimes you have to put up with things that you don't want so you can become very protective of yourself and very limiting of the, the kinds of things that you're willing to risk uh, so that you don't have to put up with things that you don't want, which can be very confining in terms of meaning. And then the last one is the subtle, constant, ongoing irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you have it if you are in charge of anything. And a lot of people really get very confining about what they're willing to do or not do because of that aspect of it. The more out of control that they feel, the more um, uh, the need for some kind of rigid structure arises. And so you really take in that, uh, uh, as Trungpa Rinpoche says, the bad news is that we're just falling through air. The good news is there's no ground. <laughs> so when you really take it how precarious all of this is uh, uh 
and then you find equanimity with it, that is a is a, an amazing place to be, right? Because you can really go for things, whether you get them or not, is not uh, not the the make or break of it all. Um, Uh, and that's that piece. You can also not go for things. Uh, and there's an ease to it that is. When you get into a, a sort of a teleological state and you have to have social position, you have to have remuneration, you have to have power, you can't find a sense of safety, you're, fr you're free of that side of that as well. Make sense? And actually, that's probably why you can come into this plane of equanimity, right? Because you're not grasping, you're not uh, aversive, you're not spacing out. You're actually able to be in the terribleness, I like to say, the terribleness of the present moment. <laughs> What's so terrible about the present moment that we can't even inhabit it for a few seconds? So let's do some meditation practice uh, using the just not gone technique. Uh, and I'll give some instructions as we go along. So how did that go? I was pretty tired, so I had trouble staying with it and staying awake. Uh-huh. So that's how it went. <laughs> um, I didn't get to any PT. I got a little frustrated and just sleepy. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah, I can join in. <laughs> what, ha um, what happened for you? Yeah, so this was my first time doing it with you. And um, I was really sort of moved to how, and how my attention focused concentration stayed with it for a really long time mm. and then there was a segue we were going from one to another right we were going from shinzen to something else and something jolted in me and it was this it was like i could hear the words you will expire and um and i just threw me off guard it was like you will expire and maybe you had something to do with your lead-in talk about right. permanence and death. And after that, I, I realized I was sleepy a little bit and jolting with keeping up. And um, and then I had to end about five minutes before you ended. So okay, but that I will I will expire. <laughs> you will expire. <laughs> it's like what did you say? I thought they said you will be fired. Fired from my oh. job, and it's like he will be. Oh no, I will expire. So then you just so, have to say, "What's the expiration date?" 
<laughs> yeah, I didn't. Uh, yeah, I was like, okay, tell me when so I can be prepared. Uh, I don't know. I once had a Vedic astro- astrologer tell me actually. Oh, really? What year? What year I would expire? And I'm like, you have no right to tell me that. It's not predestined. <laughs> I didn't like it because it oh. was earlier than I thought it would be. So. Oh, interesting. Can't I extend it? That seems pretty early. Um, you say, well, this is what the Vedic astrology says. Oh. We don't know, I don't think, in reality, our expiration date. Is it up there in the Akashic Records somewhere? I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not even sure it's useful to know. Well, yeah, I agree with you there, but I was just wondering if there's some karmic seed somewhere that knows or predicts or something not that i have access to nor myself and i i think you're right it's not something we need to know Mm. takes away the mystery (laughs) my doctor and i really quite appreciated him for that it says uh just keep keep the clock 10 years ahead so just keep planning for 10 years ahead and then if you get an illness that that that's likely to cause your death stop extending <laughs> oh <laughs> when they give you a year to live because of cancer or something or, or yeah. they just say well you get a diagnosis that's likely to end in uh, li- likely to be causative just stop extending 10 years because it takes most of those serious illnesses about that long to get you i see so, yeah so that's I what i've been doing you always extend 10 years i like that no so uh thank you all for coming to i love you keep going um and uh we have some stuff coming up we have a a day long on sunday i think um we're alternating saturdays and sundays for the next month or so we're going to do uh uh the level one which is three three uh day longs this is this will be the second one in this series on sunday on sunday and then we, we're going to do um, the, the day-longs on coupling, so uh, also called I Love You, Keep Going Now. Um, we have a, a virtual retreat this spring in April. It should be up on the website uh, if it's not already. And then we're also going to do an in-person retreat in the fall, uh, October 1st through 8th, in, uh, up at Seven Circles Retreat Center. Um, we have a level two starting in April. Uh, so take a look at that as well. If you're interested in doing and uh, touching into the level one and getting a sense of what the attachment work is like, and then doing a deep dive in the level two, uh, April is the next opportunity for that. We will uh, do them once a quarter. Uh, I think that's about it. Um, thank you for coming to, for this. I, offer the teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation. There's a link on the website uh, to make a donation. Any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work that Medic Group is doing. Thank you for coming, and I hope to see you again soon. Bye. Thank you.